morning. Open with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we started out last week in Romans, um, and uh, we're going to go through verse 7 today and be talking about the authority, nature, and power of the gospel. Last week, we looked very much at the authority of Paul and uh, his authority of delivering the message of the gospel. But today, we're focusing in on the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly uh, the authority, nature, and power of the gospel. Um, there are many gospels. Uh, some are Christian. Uh, there are many gospels of other religions. Good news that they say uh, redeems or good news that uh, will help you along the way in life and so forth. But Paul is putting forward the gospel. The key theme of the Romans is the gospel. And verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are certainly thematic of the entire letter that Paul writes. Uh, we have issues today uh, in, in, our, uh, in our nation, uh, in the world, because we're exporting a gospel uh, that promises things that the Word of God doesn't promise necessarily to people. Uh, the American culture's influence on the gospel is a problem. So we have an American gospel. Perhaps you've seen uh, the documentary on that, an American gospel, and it has distorted and it has corrupted the gospel, namely in that it promises, quote, the American dream of health, wealth, and prosperity. Um, and when you add such things to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you get a massive distortion of what the gospel truly is. Um, at the same time, if you take away from the gospel, uh, from the influence of uh, postmodernity or relativism or uh, pluralism that exists today, uh, they take away from the gospel uh, such things as objective truth or objective morality. And I want us to know and to understand that to add to the gospel or to take away from the gospel diminishes the gospel, all right? It removes the gospel and removes the power of the gospel. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians, you know, that, that God chose to save people through the folly of preaching. Now, I can't tell you how much... Uh, that builds up a preacher to think that what he's doing is folly, okay? But it truly is because there's no power in the man. The power is in the message. And there's so many ways that that's getting crossed up today. And the way that worship services are being turned into performances. Not only in the music, but in the preaching. Paul said, I didn't come with great words. I came in fear and trembling. And he delivered a gospel that saves. The problem with false gospels is that they don't save. They don't redeem. They don't transform. So Paul begins to speak about the gospel. He writes here speaking to us about the gospel. And I want us to uh, see the authority, nature, and power of the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you want to know what my outline is, I just said it, okay? The first is the authority of the gospel. I want us to see what Paul says about that. Secondly, I want us to see what he says about the nature of the gospel. And lastly, I want us to see and understand that he's speaking of a the transforming power of the gospel. First off, Paul says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. I'm going to stop right there for a moment and see he says he was set apart for the gospel of God. Notice the possessive of the gospel. We don't 
possess the gospel. God possesses the gospel. This is God's gospel. And we possess it in that we have received it. But God didn't receive it. He created it. He came up with the plan of redemption. He came up with the, uh, the, uh, the thought of saving out of his own character, out of who he is. This is the gospel of God. Not the gospel of the Jews, not the gospel of the Greeks, but the gospel of God that is good and is to be proclaimed to the Jews and the Greeks. And so this gospel is from eternity, which he promised beforehand. This gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. And he's going to go on and say, through the prophets. I'm going to take that first part he promised beforehand. Because Paul is constantly pointing to the pre-creation existence of the gospel. He does that. We need to understand that the gospel that we have uh, was not created by God as a response to the fall in Genesis 3. You ever heard any of those sermons? Any of those gospels? They said, well, man, you know, what happened is Adam, he sinned, you know. Uh, and when he sinned, God had to come up with a plan to redeem people. No. The plan existed before the foundation of the world. The plan to redeem existed before he spoke, uh, let there be light. The gospel is God's promise of redemption before there was anything to redeem. There was nothing to redeem. But he was about to create it. And so the gospel is God's promise of redemption before there was anything to redeem. Peter points to this truth in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm trying an experiment today, by the way. I didn't mark any of my verses, okay, that I'm turning to. So that I don't start reading them before you get there, okay. And, and I, I would never do well at Bible drill. So just, just so you know. But look with me in verse 22 of chapter 2 of Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Y'all hear what he said? This Jesus delivered up According to, in line with, a definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, that, that word definite plan, that, that's one Greek word called boule. And what that is, is it's speaking of a council gathered together to make a decision. What we're seeing here is the council of the Godhead before the foundation of the world. Bringing into existence the plan of redemption. What's the purpose of that? God's glory. The glory of God. Paul's actually going to talk with that as we get into some of the more, uh, get deeper into Romans in chapters 8 and chapter 9. He's going to start talking about that, the glory of God. And this is why God uses all things for his glory. So here we have this definite plan and foreknowledge. In other letters, Paul establishes the same authority regarding the gospel that it was, came beforehand, that the plan was already in place before there was even a breath breathed by a human being. 
Look with me, if you will, at uh, 2 Timothy, or, uh, yeah, 2 Timothy 1, 9. Beginning verse 8, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I'll stop right there. You hear what he said? Which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. It's the gospel. To tell you that the Greek there is uh, before time. You could actually say that. The, the Greek word is chronos, before time. Now, we could get into some, some of the physical and metaphysical things of philosophy right now if you want, but we won't do that, okay, because I don't think you would want to track that. But there was a time when there was no time, and then time began. You have chronos beginning, okay, and then what you have is you have time in time. And we call those seasons. But this is not saying before a season. It's saying before there was time. There was a time in which there was no time. And it was then that the gospel came to be. Outflowing out of the character of God. A God who redeems. A God who loves. In Titus chapter 2, we see again this same language. Titus chapter, yeah, Titus chapter 1, sorry, verse 2. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. We just covered that last week on Wednesday evening Bible study. But it says in chapter uh, 1, verse 2, Speaking of the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages, chronos, chronos began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So this gospel, this eternal life promised to mankind, to all who believe, all who trust in him, all who turn from their sin, the plan of that was before time. God was not responding to our sin. He was expecting it. He knew we would. God's purpose and pleasure of redemption born out of his character who longs most of all for his own glory. It glorifies God to save wretches like you and me. Y'all realize that, right? I mean, it glorifies God that he could save us and change any of us. That's just amazing. I'll have much more to say about this later, but I'm kind of giving a broad stroke here today, if you will. But his glory is most completely accomplished in the redemption of a people for his own possession. Isn't that great? And that's accomplished through the message that is preached. If you think, you know, you hear some of these Gospels, and they sound a lot like, they sound good, Brother Rick. I mean, they mention Jesus, and that he died on the cross, and he was rose again. What's wrong if they promise that everything will be good if you come to Jesus? Well, let me tell you what's wrong with it. It's just not true. 
Christianity can give you multiple examples of that. That everything won't just be hunky-dory throughout your life here on earth because you know Jesus. Not only that, is that it weakens the gospel to where people begin to shift it around and Paul says this is the gospel. The authority of the gospel is God. It is God who saves. It is God who keeps us. It is God who gives us assurance that we are his, not the basis of our works or our performance, but on the basis solely of the completed work of Jesus Christ. And the plan of that was before the foundation of the world. The authority of the gospel is God. And we know that it stands totally and completely capable of saving because it existed before time, before any of us did. It shows of the divine origin of the gospel, not the origin of men. That takes us to the nature of the gospel. Paul says here, he set apart the uh, he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We'll stop right there. I want you to notice couple of things here. First of all, I want you to notice that the gospel of God is rooted in the Old Testament. It is rooted in the Old Testament. He promised beforehand through his prophets. One thing that Paul is saying right there, the gospel is not new. All right? The uh, criticisms and the accusations that came from the Jews on the regular uh, was that the apostles and that the followers of Jesus made all this up. It's a, it's a sect that has come out of Judaism and it's going to die out. That was actually uh, one of the uh, Pharisees' instruction. You know, these things have risen up out of Judaism multiple times and they just die out over time. Why don't we just leave it alone? Because if it's true, you're going to be fighting against God. I believe it was Gamaliel who stood up and said that. So they, would, they were constantly uh, at odds with Paul's gospel saying that it's brand new. It's not new. Not only does it carry the authority of God from the, before the foundation of the world, it also has been revealed to you through the prophets. I mean, they have been uh, uh, spouting this stuff for thousands of years, Paul's saying, from the place that he's at. They've been proclaiming these things. Paul points to the Old Testament prophets as the basis of the gospel of God. The prophets of the Jews testified to the gospel proclaiming the Messiah who would be the salvation of the Jews and all of the nations, not just the Jews, but all the nations. Isaiah said it would be by his stripes that we are healed. According to Ezekiel, our inability to obey God's commands would be resolved in receiving a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. And that the Spirit of God would be in us, transforming us and causing us to obey the result of having trusted the Messiah, the one who would come. But most specifically, he points to this, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. Let's pick that up. According to the flesh. Now, we just came out of an Old Testament book that pointed to uh, the Davidic line that leads right up to Jesus Christ. Uh, but the prophets were uh, proclaiming this truth in their own prophecies. 
Uh, we see in uh, Jeremiah chapter 23. Look with me there. Jeremiah. Look at the verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. He's speaking of Messiah. He's speaking of the Savior. He's speaking of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, Jesus Christ. Paul's helping them to see, look, what you're seeing in Jesus, what we're proclaiming in Jesus Christ, agrees with the prophets. He's saying the nature of the gospel, the authority of the gospel, comes from God through the prophets. It's been revealed to us already. So he points to the genealogy as evidence of his authenticity as the Son of God. His humanity is displayed in the truths spoken by the prophet, Jesus Christ, fully and truly. Man, okay, completely and totally. Dude bled like we did. He ate like we did. Well, no, he controlled himself a little better than I do. But, you know, he ate all these things. He was like us in every way except one, without sin. This human being walked through life being tempted in every way as we are. And never once gave in to that temptation. Never once sinned against the Father. Never once stepped outside of the law. Paul is pointing to him and really making note of his humanity here. That in the flesh he was the son of David. Just like the prophet said he would be. The gospel, this isn't something we made up. We're not misinterpreting what the prophet said. You preached this before Jesus got here that this would happen. Now it's happened and you want to deny it. He's going to be making that argument all the way through Romans, by the way. So he's saying that Jesus is indeed the man. Josh McDowell years ago wrote a little book called More Than a Carpenter. And in there he puts forward an argument that Jesus was either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. I want you to know he was more than a carpenter. He was more than just a man who had a trade. He was indeed Lord of all. And by him, nothing was made. By, without him, nothing was made. Let me get that right and just switch that up. So not only is it rooted in the Old Testament, it's Christ-centered. Speaking of his humanity and his perfect life. The works that he did testified to the fact that he was sent by the Father. His crucifixion destroyed sin and death for all who believe and repent. Isn't that great news? But look what he says right after that. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. Now we're seeing that he is God. He was declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be second person of the Trinity. He was declared to be God himself. The gospel proclaims that Jesus Christ died and was raised again. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This word declared, it means that he was openly appointed by this crowning event to be the Son of God. In other words, resurrection demonstrated who and what he was and is. I mean, that he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's describing who he is and what he is. He is the Lord of all. And he is the Savior of the world. I mean, think about this. All the things that Jesus was doing during his lifetime. I mean, he turned water into wine. Eh, no big deal, you know. The Egyptian uh, sorcerers, they did the things that Moses did, you know. Uh, to their own destruction, actually, if you can imagine. I mean, it's kind of like, well, you know, you turned, uh, you know, you, you brought forth frogs back in, the, back in the, the Exodus. And what do they do? Well, we can do that, and they brought forth more frogs. What kind of ignorance is that anyway? You know, hey, we can, we can do that. Well, Jesus was doing all these things, and people would, they were amazed, but then they started getting critical of him. They didn't believe the signs were something that were coming from God. As a matter of fact, they accused him of being demon-possessed. And that's where his power was coming from. But Jesus testified, and the disciples testified, and Paul testifies that the things that Jesus did pointed to the fact that he was actually the living God. And that was his own claim. And what made that convincing? I tell you what makes it convincing is when you take a cat of nine tails and you're running across someone's back some 40 or 50 times. Who knows? I don't know how many. They didn't count them out. The law was 40, 39. Pressed the crown of thorns on his head, drove spikes through his his, his, his hands, his wrists, and his feet. At some point, they ran a spear through him, but he was already dead then. All the evidence points to Jesus Christ on the cross, dead. They didn't break a bone in his body. They pulled him down off the cross Joseph of Arimathea came and he took the body and he and Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees that we meet in, in John, uh, took his body and they uh, did a temporary embalming, if you will, and put him in the, in the tomb. The women came back a few days later, three. And they found an empty tomb. Paul's pointing to the divine nature of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he says, let me show you what makes that true. He's raised. He's alive. And not only is he alive, but the testimony is, is that the disciples watched him ascend into heaven. And he said, when you see that, I want you to know I'm at the right hand of the Father. I'm just waiting on the moment to come. Paul's saying, I want you to know the authority and the nature of this gospel. And the authority and the nature of this gospel is found in God who has revealed to us through the prophets 
of the one who would come. And that one who came lived a perfect life and he was nailed to the cross. Propitiation for our sin. Uh, you ought to know what propitiation means by now. It's the substitutionary atonement of, G- of, uh, of, of Jesus Christ on our behalf where he bore our sin and he suffered under the wrath of God right there on that cross. The resurrection declares that absolutely. I want you to know, God is saying by raising him from the dead, that who he said he was and what he demonstrated that said that he was, was true. He is God. He is Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. He is raised. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is coming back. And I want you to believe this gospel. And Paul's about to make an argument for the next 16 chapters as to why you and I should believe that this gospel is true. Paul himself would make the argument, let me tell you something. The gospel doesn't necessarily lead to a happy physical life. Just take a moment to look at the things he went through for the sake of the gospel. It was a joy to him to suffer for the sake of Christ. Except maybe when they were knocking his teeth out. At that particular moment. We need to know that this gospel is good. The priority of the gospel, I want you to know this. The priority of the gospel is not my redemption and your redemption. That's not the priority of the gospel. The priority of the gospel is God's glory. That's the priority of the gospel. He glorifies himself through redeeming his children. But I want us to see that the transforming power of the gospel is also the result of the authority and nature of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 4, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The transforming power of the gospel brings about obedience of faith. Do y'all know how hard it is? I know you do, because you wear the same skin I do. Do you know how hard it is to be consistent in anything whatsoever? Especially in this day of distraction. I mean, you know how hard it is to be consistent. Parents, how hard is it to be consistent in parenting? You know, we have to watch what we say because we have to do what we say we're going to do, right? I mean, if we are going to discipline well, we can't leave little things hanging out here. Right? We have to do what we say we're going to do. It's hard to be consistent. Especially when they do something. And it's totally willful disobedience. But it's so cute. Anybody? And you go... Come on, grandparents, you know you do that. Parents, too. I mean, you got to turn your head real fast and hide the little snicker that you have. And then you, with a straight face, have to turn around and ruffle up your brow and get on to them. No, you can't say that. No, you can't do that. Come here, I'll give you something to cry about. 
Try to stay away from those extremes like, I'm going to knock your head off. You really can't do that, okay? It's when you can't be consistent. But you do need to be consistent. It's hard for us to be consistent. Just in the daily, getting up in the morning and reading the Bible, praying. Anybody miss that this week? You don't have to raise your hand. Yeah, I didn't read the Bible on Tuesday. Anybody? No? Don't, don't raise your hand. Man, I just, I, my prayer is just flat. Nothing to it. Or I didn't pray at all. I didn't even think to pray. Come on, surely this isn't just me, right? Do y'all know how hard it is to be consistent? You do. I know you do. We can apply that thinking to just about anything. In terms of obeying Jesus Christ, obeying God, we just can't do it. But what does Paul say here about the gospel? He says, you know, it's through God that I've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. How are you going to do that? How am I going to preach the gospel? That's how. The preaching of the gospel and the embrace of the gospel by those who hear brings about obedience of faith. It's transforming. It takes our inconsistencies and our inability and he begins to teach us and show us how we can be consistent and how we can obey the word of God when we take Jesus Christ to be the center of our existence rather than ourselves it brings about obedience of faith the one who believes is transformed by the power of God. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to bring this to bear uh, to the Romans in his writing. And I, I want to just go ahead and read a portion of that beginning in verse, six, verse 14 of Romans chapter 6. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are now, or we are not under law, but under grace? Paul says, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, that's you and me, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Okay, we were once slaves of sin, and now we're slaves of righteousness. I want you to know, that is powerful transformation that God works in us through the power of the gospel that saves us, sets us free from sin, and puts us on a path to righteousness. The gospel transforms our minds. Repentance, that word alone. Some people uh, you know, think of it in terms of what it does, and we try to explain it in that way. But it means literally to have a change of mind. When we believe Jesus, He changes our mind. Where we once did not believe God and were enemies of God, now what we are is we're in pursuit of Him. Something we couldn't do on our own. And so we have a change of mind. This right here, we were slaves to sin. He changes our mind. You know what? He changes our mind in this way, that sin, at one time, we embraced. 
We loved it. We didn't even consider it sin. But when we hear the gospel and the power of God works in such a way that we are convicted of our sin and we see it as the offense that it is before God and he changes us and makes us new and he works that in us and we repent and we confess that we are sinners, he changes our mind and our mind now is fixed on something else, righteousness, something we couldn't have come up with. Something we would not have pursued. Something that we never, we constantly turned away from in favor of sin. Now we're turning away from sin and we're turning to righteousness. It's called repentance. It's a change of mind. It is a transformation. It is a change of person that takes place. When your mind changes, your action changes. Us changing doesn't save us. The power of the gospel saves us. The power of God through the cross of Christ saves us. And the response to that is faith and repentance in him. For who? Here he says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Jews. No, it's not what he says. Among the nations. Among the Gentiles. Among all people. The Jews, by the way, are assumed in what he's saying there. It's going to be specified later on. It's going to be specified often. Not only in this letter, but every letter that he writes. He says to the Jew and to the Greek. Bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Among all the nations. Among the Greeks. Among the Gentiles. Look at chapter 1 verse 16 and 17, which I told you is the theme verse of the entire book. What he's going to focus on the whole time. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now go back up. It is the power of gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone. Pos is the Greek word all, and it means all of a kind. Don't forget that that's what that Greek word means. All of a kind. That's why he's making this, specifying that. Everyone who believes. And then what kind? Jews and Gentiles. You say, well, how do you know the difference? Are you a Jew? No. Then you're a Gentile. (laughs) Okay? That's what the word means. The, The word for Gentile or nations, it always means anything that's not a Jew. All right? Anyone that isn't a Jew is a Gentile. Real easy. All right? But what's he saying here? It's the power of God for salvation to all of a kind who believe. Jews or Gentiles. Doesn't matter. And that's what he's pointing to. He's pointing to their nationalities. He's pointing to the nations. He's not pointing to every person. He's pointing to every kind of person. And so I, I want us to, uh, to notice that it's this transforming power that people like Greeks who were overwhelmed with the sins of immorality. I mean, just 
they had no objective truth in their culture. Unless it satisfied them in some way. Because they were all about that. It was the nations. They were, God will save all. You know, in the Old Testament, he revealed himself to who? The Jews. Very few Gentiles. Very few. So what about all those other people? He didn't make himself known to them. Only the Jews. Of all the people who lived in the world, nobody knew about him except the Jews. But here he's saying Jews and Gentiles. All of them. Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is the power to save them. Now, let me just take a couple of minutes. I only have a couple of minutes, but I, I'm going to take a couple of minutes because I want to just kind of bring this to bear for a moment. Believers or unbelievers, if you're in here today and you're an unbeliever, You've been believing in a gospel that makes you happy rather than a gospel that takes away sin. You've been banking on a God that's going to clear the path and make your life easy. You've believed the wrong gospel. The true gospel is, is that he changes your mind. That he loved sinners. That he longed for his own glory. And so he brought to bear a plan of redemption that began before the foundation of the world. It wasn't a response to our sin. It was a preparation knowing that sin would be inevitable if he created any other being. And you on your own wouldn't pursue life in him for anything. Except at the preaching of the gospel that finds its authority in God. That finds its nature rooted throughout scripture. It finds at its very center Christ, who is Jesus, our Lord. And a gospel that changes minds and hearts and lives. This is that gospel. You believe it, unbeliever. Repent of your sin and call on him and he will save you. He will absolutely save you. Anyone comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. And I can assure you, if you come to him, it's because he said, come in. And you heard. You may have heard the gospel a thousand times. One time, he calls, and you hear, and you go, yes. Of course I'll come. Why haven't I come before? Yes. Christian, if you believe this gospel, don't beat yourself down in thinking that I don't live up to it. None of us do. Anybody? Any of you live up to the gospel? I mean, if you got, look, if you do, we need to sit and talk about writing a book, okay? I mean, you need to come and talk to me. I need to know. None of us do. And let me tell you something. If you are looking for your assurance in what you do, you are doomed to despair and depression or an arrogance nobody wants to be around. Let me tell you where your assurance is. It's not in that you do everything right. It's not in that you obey everything. It's not that you pray every day. It's not that you read your Bible every day. It's not that you show up to church. That's not your assurance. Your assurance is based in the 
eternal gospel of Jesus Christ that was authored by the living God. And that's it. Any other answer? Doesn't cut it. You'll never find assurance in what you do. You'll never find assurance in your performance. You will only find it in the cross of Jesus. And if you're relying on anything other than the cross of Christ, you're doomed. You're doomed. My prayer is that you're not doomed. My prayer is that you embrace the gospel. My prayer is that you hear the Spirit saying, believe that. He looks funny, but the message is true. Believe Him. Believe the Word. Believe the Gospel. Call on Him. Call on Christ. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You, Lord, for the power of the Gospel, the Word of the Gospel, the hope of the Gospel, the certainty of the Gospel, and the certainty of the salvation that comes through the Gospel. Lord, help us never to look for our assurance in any other place other than the gospel. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to share with the people around us, with the world around us, the true gospel. The gospel according to your word. Not the gospel, Lord, that seeks the pleasures of this world. But the gospel that seeks your pleasure and your glory is our greatest pursuit. And you yourself is our greatest prize. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.